Welcome back to the Film Frequency podcast. Today's episode, we're going to be covering one of probably the biggest directors of all time, the American director Steven Spielberg. And today, it's myself, Mark, and Ross, and we're joined by Brian. Brian, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me again. It was much fun uh, okay. last time with the, with the whole feud going on. <laughs> with the whole feud with uh, Roland Emmerich. Hopefully, there's not going to be too many feuds between Mark and Ross today with big old well, Steven Spielberg. Well, you never know. You never know. Don't rule it out. <laughs> so, um, Steven Spielberg was born on the 7th, 18th of December, 1946, um, which I think makes him 75, I think. Um, or he's about to turn 75. Um, and... I'm sure most people have heard this director before. He's often regarded as the most commercially successful director of all time. Um, he has won various film awards for his directing and producing roles. He's won three Academy Awards, two for Best Director, which, which I'm sure he's in quite a small club of, uh, one for Schindler's List in 1994, which we'll be talking about today, and then again for Saving Private Ryan in 1999. Um, seven of his films have been inducted into the National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Um, and I, could, I, I think there's probably even more than seven you could probably put into that. Um, he's kind of Hollywood's dream. He basically produces these great franchises or great concepts, and then it allows Hollywood to go and make like another half dozen of them. Um, so I think we'll just start from the start um, of his filmography. Um, so Spielberg started his career with the film Duel. Um, this one I haven't seen myself. Um, Corey, I think you're the only one out of the four of us that have seen his very his uh, debut film. Essentially, what did we think of this one? Yeah, this this was the um, this was actually the last Spielberg film that I watched. I watched it during the pandemic. It was a TV movie, so um, if you actually watch Duel, it's in like the TV aspect ratio, which is quite interesting. It's literally about a guy getting chased across. Like an American highway by a big like eighteen wheeler truck, not not like a, a sentient eighteen wheeler truck. There's a guy behind the behind the uh, the wheel, but um, basically him just getting harassed for like ninety minutes. It's really good. You can see where films like um, Mad Max and stuff, you know, any sort of like movies like that, where it just takes place in kind of one road. You can see a lot of influences from that, but it's a really good like thriller. Highly recommend. It's a good movie. Um, I should also mention that um, before we started this podcast, we decided we would rank all our, our Spielberg films that we've seen and uh, out of 10 and then basically work out our top 10 um, as a group of our top 10 Spielberg films of all time. So we've kind of ranked them and um, as we go through them, we'll kind of pick out which ones made our top 10 uh, and which ones made in our, into our top three as well. Um, so after Duel, we didn't rank Duel in our list because I think Corey's the only one who's seen it. But after Duel, the thing that really put Steven Spielberg on the map was Jaws. It came out in 1975. All of us have seen it. It's very culturally significant. A lot of the times Jaws is looked upon as the, 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 where Hollywood blockbusters originated from. Shut off that engine. 
Um, do you remember when you watched this film, guys? I was on an airplane and I screamed at one point and the air stewardess had to come over and ask me if I was okay. Um, it's just because there's a bit in this movie and I don't know everyone who's seen it, but there's a bit in this movie that's like the most weirdly jumpy thing I've ever seen where they're like sort of searching the boils of this ship that has been sunk and this individual just this face pans across the camera but it's really it's slow but it's just one of the most i just feel like absolute abject terror every time i witness it and um yeah just completely out of nowhere and i did sort of audibly yell out loud which is not a good thing to do on an airplane um so that was my memory of jaws but it's i really really like it it's really really good um i remember when i first watched jaws I can't remember what age I was, but even that opening scene of the woman uh, late at night in the open sea and just the whole, the music coming in and the the horror of what's about to happen. I remember thinking, wow, I'm watching something very special here. Um, this isn't like your normal horror film or your normal kind of thrill. Um, just, it really unnerved me right from the start. Um, Corey, I know you're a massive fan of Jaws as well. Um, do you remember when you watched it? How many times you've seen it? Well, no, this is the thing. I, as I was mentioning earlier, I watched Jaws like when I was really a lot younger. Really, really like we're talking like probably like twenty years ago now. Um, probably shouldn't have been watching it at that age. And I don't know if I watched it in one bit or I've sat down and watched pieces of it. But I actually haven't watched it since. And it, it it's not even ranked. I don't even have ranked on IMDb. That's how much I don't even remember it. So I have to say, I it's one that I've always meant to sit down and maybe rewatch or remaster anything of it. But um, yeah, I, I don't think it's the best one to come to about Jaws and Close Encounters as well. It's another one that I watched very, very young. But what about you, Mark? Or Brian, you haven't said yet. What about you? When did you see Jaws? Um, first of all, I wanted to compliment Ross on being the Literally the only guy <laughs> who can get scared of Jaws in the airplane. <laughs> okay. it, it could be that if the airplane crashes, they crash in the ocean. But okay, yeah, it's a bit far. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. And also, like I said, I went. I then went on to become a marine biologist later yeah. on. So maybe this is part of me working my way through the trauma. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, probably. <laughs> but um, uh, maybe as you guys have seen, uh, I haven't ranked it, and that's because <laughs> that's because I haven't seen it. And I haven't told anyone this. Only my girlfriend knows it. And we wanted to watch it like uh, uh, yesterday. And I, and I turned it on. And it was on for like 10 minutes. And I realized I didn't watch any 10 of those minutes. And I was like, nah, uh, it's not for me. Maybe because it's too iconic. Maybe because of the time. And, and horror movies don't do it really well for me. Yeah, I do think with Jaws, it is one of those films, and we'll talk about this in some of um, Spielberg's earlier um, film list as well, that I find that because I came to these films at a, like later than when they came out, they don't resonate with me as much as they probably would have if I had have been there uh, when they first came out. Because I think Jaws was revolutionary in trying to make this animatronic shark and the suspense that was being created. I think, you know, there's even an argument with Jaws about it being drawn out almost too far, the tension. And a lot of films nowadays, it's all about trying to reveal 
the monster very early on, whereas Jaws is very, very restrained about only revealing the actual shark at very few parts of the film. Um, in fact, you only really get to see him clearly at the very end of the film when he's not, you know, kind of biting on the, the boat. Um, so, and again, looking back on it, when you do see him in the, the, the Jaws uh, model in full effect, it looks really fake. Um, because, but at the time, I'm sure it looked really, really scary and realistic. So I think this is one of those films that needs a wee bit of time. Yeah, the famous story about that, they called, I think it was called Bruce, isn't that yep. what the, the shark's yep. called Bruce? Yeah, the famous story is that the animatronic was broke for most of the production. So that's the reason why you don't see it as much as you do. So they had to build, work around that with the editing. And obviously, like, this is probably one of the most suspenseful movies. Um, yep. Going. Whereas, you know, maybe if it hadn't been broke, it would have been in a lot more and the film might not have been as iconic as it was. So it's, just, it's interesting little film facts like that, which, you know, completely change how films put together. I think I've even heard somewhere that uh, Steven Spielberg himself said that was the worst production he was ever on because of because of the fucking shark. Wow. And it kept breaking down because he had to put all, <laughs> all that into the ocean. And it's not only water, but it's salt water. Yeah. Oh, so that kind of put him on the map. He made Close Encounters of Third Kind, um, his first kind of uh, sci-fi based film. And that was uh, released in 1997, 1977, sorry, I've jumped 20 years. Um, I saw this during lockdown um, and again, I was quite impressed with it, um, especially the third act and kind of the climax of getting to see the alien ship was really, really impressive for me. But um, yeah, obviously I've come to this film a lot later than most people have. Um, Corey and Brian, I know you've both seen this film. What did you think of it? And what, what time, like what age were you when you saw it? I'll, yeah, I'll go first. Because um, being, a, I think, the greatest sci-fi nerd here, uh, <laughs> this was really a great movie for me as well. But the thing I liked about this uh, and something that Corey just touched on, or maybe you did, Mark, um, in Jaws, you, you see the, 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 the buildup of the suspense and, and, and you really feel like he's taking his time, you know? And he also did that with, uh, with Close Encounters. It's, it's a slow movie and, and that's something you don't really expect from Steven Spielberg. Uh, being Steven Spielberg himself, the things I like the most about his uh, filmmaking um, is the suspension buildup, the... It is one takes. He doesn't overuse it. It's always motivated. No, not, not, not always, but mostly. It's, it's motivated and, uh, and it's blocking. Those three things. I think he does that the best of everyone. And I think that, that resonates on a, yeah, on a um, yeah, animalistic level, instinctive level, how, how we like to see things. I think he can do that really well. And in Close Encounters, he, does, he did that as well. But after, yeah, but we'll get to that. But after Raiders, uh, the the more I'd say adrenaline junkie Steven Spielberg came around. <laughs> yeah, I think the spectacle as well. Um, I when I watched this, I wasn't that on board with the film until we hit the third act. When you get to see the alien ship landing, you get to see the humans going up to it, and you have that score. Um, I assume that the John Williams that did this one. I know John Williams did Jaws with him. Um, but yeah, the score and the visuals, um, I was even kind of taken back by how impressive it was. And that's a film that came out in the 70s and it still looked really quite impressive. Um, and just kind of the, as I said, the spectacle, he does spectacle so, so well. Um, Corey, what did you think? 
yeah, once again, similar to Jaws, watched this super young. I remember enjoying the music and the visuals. I did find it quite slow. I think if I rewatch this now, my rating would probably bump a little bit. Um, I just, the ending of it, the yeah, the, the alien spaceship reveal is just so iconic. And the, the sound effects with the lights and the way they would communicate as well, I thought that was amazing. Um, but yeah, Mark, you're right, Steven Spielberg. Um, collaborated here with John Williams. He's collaborated, I think, on all but maybe four of his movies. Um, I, I read a list earlier. It was from 2017 now that said it was The Colour Purple and a couple other ones was the only two or three films that he hadn't collaborated with him on. Um, so, yeah, definitely John Williams here. Similar to a lot of his movies, maybe we'll get into that a bit later on, but, you know, they're part and partial to each other and there, there's a lot of Spielberg's success in my mind due to the John Williams collaboration. Um, but yeah, music here is fantastic. I'm always a big fan of, of strong cinematic scores and it's definitely evident in Close Encounters. Spielberg's next film um, was the first of several uh, Indiana Jones films and the very first one that began it all, which was Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is an iconic action film. Um, it's up there with one of the most game-changing films I think there's ever been in film and blockbuster. Um, what did we think of the very first Indiana Jones film, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and what did we think of Harrison Ford taking up the mantle of Indiana Jones himself? I have to say, uh, out of the Indiana Jones, uh, how iconic it is, it, it isn't that for me. For me, it was uh, Last Crusade, and uh, Ra Raiders was fine, but yeah, you need a jumping off point, right? Uh, I, I'm just happy that everybody liked Raiders. So there could be a last crusade. And that, that's actually the only um, Indiana Jones movie I've watched. The other two uh, I've just seen yeah, once or maybe when, it, when it's on TV or something like that, but never taken the, the effort to put it on actively myself. Do you think that they had some reservations with casting Harrison Ford because he was so iconic as Han Solo prior to that? Because obviously John George Lucas was, you know, there's been a lot of partnership with Steven Spielberg over the years. And in fact, I think George Lucas had a big hand in creating this character as yeah. well. So I assume that's probably where Spielberg has got the idea of casting Harrison Ford. Um, yeah. But I wonder if there was a bit of reservation as to maybe he's already too iconic as Han Solo and that people can't look past that. Yeah, you know, they, they didn't actually want him. It was a scheduling problem with... Um, they wanted a... Uh, the guy who's Monica's boyfriend. Friends. Yeah, the guy <laughs> from Friends. Yeah, What's he called? Again. Yeah. The, the guy, guy with the mustache. Oh, Tom Selleck? Yes. yes. Tom, yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 But uh, or, uh, they... they didn't want uh, Harrison Ford, and it was the idea of uh, George Lucas because um, after Star Wars, uh, Steven Spielberg asked him, "Like, what is the next thing you want to do?" And he said, "I've got this crazy idea about a 
archaeologist. And he said, okay, fine, let's go sit in the room, just you, me, and Larry Kasdan, and we'll hammer out something. And that's how it went, actually. Pretty much like that. I was there. I can. <laughs> I can. <laughs> uh, I presume uh, Indiana Jones was what gave rise to the likes of Tomb Raider and Uncharted. Like yeah. they were all maybe inspired by these. There isn't any like historical accounts of any like <laughs> Tomb Raider. You know, white. I was just gonna. I was just gonna say like I know a bunch. Of, it's like it really sort of popularized and it sort of almost created that like explorer or like reinvented that sort of explorer trope that had be previously been in like sort of earlier films. It really sort of brought it back into the fore and made it very sort of iconic. I like, I have, if you've ever met like an archeology span student at university, they were always sort of around. And like, you could tell they were always like, they always seemed really kind of a wee bit sad. And I think a large part of it is they thought they were going to be like the next Indiana Jones. And then they end up like, like one of my friends, like ended up like sifting through like, dirt and like prehistoric like pine cones or something like that was her thesis and i was like yeah it's not it's a little bit <laughs> a little bit different than what than what this movie would portray it as but it kind of made the archaeologist kind of cool you know before Absolutely. that you definitely it was definitely that type of profession which was like it'll put you to sleep that's for really boring people and then of course you had these other cool characters like laura croft popping up and things like that um, what do we think of the score as well? I mean, I, Spielberg and John Williams are responsible for so many iconic scores. Ones that if you hear two so notes out of it, you know instantly what it is. And you could easily hum this one within about four notes. Everyone would know what it is. I think, I mean, I personally, I'm a big fan of, of um, composers and people who do the soundtrack for, for movies. And... Uh, Spielberg is one of the best directors in the world, but I do not think his movies would be half as good without a lot of this music. I think music plays a big part in a lot of movies. It's the same with um, John Williams with Star Wars. Um, and I think Spielberg is very lucky to kind of get in with, with John Williams. You know, he's, he played a big part in making these movies so iconic. And it was really worked throughout the years, you know. There's a lot of... A lot of composers nowadays will jump from different directors and maybe jump in even styles, but you can tell a John Williams score right from the offset, um, and it's very evident throughout all of these movies. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a fantastic score. Me and Mark were playing uh, mini-golf the other week, and the, the, the John Williams uh, Raiders of the Last Dark movie music was playing like every every like 10 minutes. I think I was actually sick of that song by the end of it, um, which I'm never sick of that song. This <laughs> is such a great tune, but yeah, they're just so iconic. I think even people who haven't seen the movie would be able to tell you that that's from Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think that when it comes to partnerships as well, and I think it's probably the most iconic, even more so than, dare I say it, Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan. I think, you know, as much as it's like, you're lucky to get a good composer that kind of elevates the piece, I think that is part and parcel like you need to find someone artistically in line with what you're looking at and what you're wanting to achieve in order for a great piece to come through and for it to kind of gel really well you know i don't think it's as clear cut as john williams going oh i've got this in my you know archives how about this and then you know steven spielberg plays it over and goes great job let's go with that you know i think it's actually a matter of them working together talking about what the essence of the film is what they're trying to portray and what they're kind of looking for, you know, and having done a bit of background on how Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan have worked together over the years, that seems to be the kind of, you know, they sit in a room and kind of really discuss things. And sometimes the really sort of collaborative. Yeah. And the notes that they get given 
sometimes it can be very very bare bones before the film's actually there you know a lot of these times you know a soundtrack needs to kind of be developed as the film itself is being developed so you know this the person doing the soundtrack the composer has very little to work off anyway um rears the lost ark did, did make our top 10 list but just about it came in number 10 however this isn't the last time we're going to see um an indiana jones film hit our list um as we move through these as we know there have been three sequels to Raiders of the lost ark um to indiana jones in general and we're hopefully going to get a fourth one um then after Raiders of the lost ark he directed um, one of my personal favourites, which is E.T., um, The Extraterrestrial, and that was in 1982. Um, for me, I saw this at a very young age. Uh, well, not very young, but like the perfect type of age for this type of film. And I think if I was to review it now, it may lower in my ratings. But at the time, it was just, it was amazing. It was one of my favourite childhood films. Again, iconic score. Um, everyone wanted E.T. to be their best friend. And I'm so glad there wasn't a sequel made to this as well. I think E.T. would have been ruined if they had a, made sequels and made it into some sort of franchise like E.T. and Friends. Um, I know, Brian, you're also a big fan of this. What's your experience with E.T.? Um, <clears throat> actually, the same as, as I'm, I'm afraid to watch it again. Because yesterday when we were trying to decide, because my girlfriend hasn't seen a lot of Steven Spielberg stuff, um, E.T. came up as well, and I was right there with the remote, and I just couldn't do it because I was like, um, I'm afraid <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to put this movie on. I'm going to hate it because it doesn't speak to me anymore like it did. And coming back on that, um, it's, it's the late 80s and the, and the 90s type of America, you know, that isn't there anymore. We, the world has just changed way too much. And... Yeah, you, you can't just connect with it. Uh, it, it. It all feels like, yeah, if you just bought a cell phone, then you wouldn't have had the problems that you have now. There's internet in your pocket. Home alone doesn't work. All those things, they just fall off because of technology. Now, I rated it according to the uh, emotional connection I have with it from my childhood, and that's it. And that's why I won't ever see it again. Maybe with my kids in the future, far future. <laughs> But not now. Not soon. Yeah, it's, it's one of them films that has, I mean, there's a good few in Steven Spielberg's back catalogue, but especially from that time where they have, like, an animatronic main character, like, non-CGI. Um, and obviously there was obviously a period between where we are now and then that um, we started to get this mix of CGI and animatronics, but, like, it's perfect use of animatronic. It looks believable. And which I like, I know you were saying earlier, Mark, about the Jaws shark. When you see it up close, it kind of loses a bit of the believability. Whereas E.T. just wouldn't have worked with the CG character. And probably wouldn't even work now with the CG character, to be honest. If they made a, if they made a sequel to E.T. now, I reckon they would still use animatronics. And it's interesting movies now that kind of um, like to bring back animatronics, especially the new, a lot of the new Star Wars ones. A lot of the monsters that have used like practical effects, which is... It's great to see, because um, it really works with these early films, and it's great to see it continue to work now. But um, yeah, I, I love E.T. E for that. And there's, um, yeah. there's so many iconic bits as well in E.T. Like, I genuinely thought E.T. had died um, towards the end, and when you see the plant wilting as, like, kind of his life was being, was, was dying, basically. 
and I thought that was really really powerful and of course the iconic shot of the bike lifting off and then the moon in the background the full moon I mean to be fair I think the Stranger Things the whole idea of these kids on bikes in the 80s that probably all stemmed from well at least they got inspiration from ET when they have to race away from the police and the CIA or whoever it was that was investigating so yeah just such a good film and again iconic script Um, okay, so um, E.T. did make it onto our list, it, uh, and it made it pretty high. I was pretty pleased with this. It made it all the way up to number four of Spielberg's films. Um, and then after E.T., um, we had the second installment of Indiana Jones, um, which was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which came out in 1984. Um, this didn't make it onto our list. This is not the Indiana Jones film, that uh, the other one that made it onto our top ten. Um, what did we think about this, guys, um, as a sequel? I know this one normally gets mixed opinions as to if it's as good as the first one. Because this one is, is, even though it's a sequel, it's a prequel. It's set before the time in which the Raiders of the Lost Ark was set. It was interesting because it's not, for me, like I said, if I have this here, looking at the rankings that I've given it here, I've ranked this one lower than Raiders, but I think this is actually probably my my preferred one of the two because I think this is the first one I sat and watched the entire way through. They used to like play this on TV all the time, and I think this is the first one I actually sat the whole way through with. Um, but it, I wouldn't say it's maybe as iconic as obviously Raiders is, but I think it's like a in terms of like a follow up, even if it is a prequel, I think it was fairly well done. Um, it was it gave us more of what we'd seen in the first one. Um, it also it was interesting because they cut um, the is sort of love interest. They give him a new love interest for this one, and then she disappears for this one. But then I again, think she's back in the third and the fourth one afterwards. So they sort of they obviously they looked at what worked and what didn't, and sort of played around with that. But I just I I really really I really like this movie. I remember there's that one scene where he's like sitting at dinner with everybody and they're eating like brains out of yeah. monkey skulls, and yeah. I thought it was so cool. And as a kid, I remember like going like and asking my parents if I could have monkey skulls, and I don't know what my mum probably thought at that point, but yeah, absolutely, I really really like this one. Yeah, it's always on TV. I find like you always see these types of films on TV and um, snippets of it. I remember the it it's darker than the first one. I remember I remember the whole scene at the end yeah. when they're doing those rituals and like pulling out a heart. Like that's really dark stuff for a kids' film. Looking back on it now. Um, but I also found it. I mean, more but, the, but if you as well. think if you think back to the first one, the first one's a pretty dark movie as well. Like given the subject matter, like obviously he's fighting the Nazis and stuff. But there's that bit 
in the first one whenever the Ark of the Covenant is actually opened and that guy's face melts off <laughs> and like all that sort of stuff. So it's always there has been like a darkness to it that you wouldn't sort of that look I don't even know what age rating these like if they even had proper age ratings back in those days, but like what it would have come out as because I think like that probably would traumatize a bunch of kids. And there's definitely like you said the bit where like the hearts and stuff are getting cut out in this one. But like the, the franchise as a whole has never really had a problem with some fairly like scary visuals, so to speak. Um, so next after Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, um, Spielberg directed The Color Purple <laughs> um, in 1985. And only Marcus this was a film that only I've seen and I only watched this two weeks ago. This was my pick of the films that I hadn't seen yet, Spielberg's, that I wanted to see um, for this podcast to discuss. And it stars a really good cast. It stars Whoopi Goldberg um, and it stars Oprah. And it's all about a girl um, of a, a black Southern woman in the early 20th century who endures over four decades, lots of abuse. And it's a very sad story, but it's also very classic Spielberg style. It's it's definitely a period drama. Um, and of course, because of the background that he's kind of hitting on Spielberg, he hits all these sort of kind of uh, touchy social commentaries that today it's very, very conversational. Um, and he does a really, really good job of it. Um, you know, it hits the likes of color. It looks looks at, you know, a woman who's not particularly attractive, what they had to endure and what their kind of life looked like in 20th century America, looked at race divide, social divide, gender biases, all of them. Um, and he kind of navigates it really, really well. It's based on a book, I believe, a novel. Um, and even though, again, Spielberg's like run times are balloon past two hours most of the time and this one does as well but it never felt like it was losing my attention and a story like this wouldn't be my full cup of tea most of the time but I, I was constantly on board and Whippy Goldberg I had no idea how good an actress she was you know I've only ever seen her she's an EGOT pardon she's one of those she's I think she's like one of the only female EGOTs which is that thing where if you get an Emmy a Grammy an Oscar and a Tony and there's like a handful of people who've got them throughout the years. And I have a funny feeling she's like the only or one of the only women that's got it. like it's predominantly men that have got it. And it wasn't this because I was looking up. I was like, I know she her Oscar is from Ghost. I think she's in Ghost mm-hmm. and that's what she got for. It. But from what I've heard, she's, she should she have got the Golden Globe for this. And I think she was nominated potentially for an Oscar for this as well. So she has, yeah. you know what I mean? You forget sometimes like whenever you see her wandering around and stuff like how prestigious she actually is it's kind of insane <laughs> wandering around <laughs> very good wandering <laughs> around Ross sees Whoopi Goldberg down the shops down the shops self checkout queue and Arthur just <laughs> hanging up like burger in Norway these days <laughs> um, yeah it's just really really strong stuff this film um, and you know, I think came out today. I think it would win all the Oscars, like all the Oscars. Now, I think this did get it put up for about nine or ten Oscars, um, and I think for to expose that and get the platform it needed, it needed a director like Steven Spielberg. But who's to say if he would even be in the running to direct a film like this these days, based on his own racial profile? And I don't know if these days, if it would be navigated, you know, if a heavier hand would navigate this sort of topic. Um, or a heavier hand would, would kind of be taken for to, to kind of bring this to the screen. So I think he did a really, really good job of it. You're not getting 
my money, not one thin dime. Did I ever ask you for anything? I don't Did I ever ask you for anything? I never asked you for nothing, not even your sorry ass hand in marriage. Nothing. I never asked you for nothing. <laughs> oh, Sophia home now. Sophia home. Things gonna be changing around here, too. Boy, if you gonna let this little nappy-head gal sit here and cuss you out like that, you sitting at the head of your own dinner table and you acting like a waiter. Hush, your old fool, always meddling in somebody's business. Sophia home now. Just hush up. She'll be back. She'll got talent. She can sing. She got spunk. She can talk to anybody. She can stand up and be noticed. But what you got? ugly, you're skinny, you shake funny, and you're too scared to open your mouth to people. Although I haven't seen this film, I'm sure this was probably a big moment in Spielberg's career, because this is the first of his movies that he had made to this point that wasn't like science fiction. Of mm -hmm. course, maybe you wouldn't say Jaws isn't science fiction, but it's about a larger yeah, shark yeah. than any. I presume Ross is the marine biologist in it. There was, there was yet to be a shark that was that size, is there? It was giant, wasn't it? It was supposed to be uh, well, bigger than normal sharks. I mean, yeah, there, there was, they're prehistoric <laughs> individuals that are probably that are bigger than yeah. great whites, but yeah. But not during yeah, this. So it was the first time, and he's done this throughout his career, where his films are either sci-fi or, like, as you say, Mark, social commentaries, or maybe based on war, uh, like, uh, like some sort of war. Maybe Catch Me If You Can is maybe one that isn't exactly, um, you know, about a serious issue. But... Um, and it's interesting that he either does either or, but um, and the second one after that, obviously he just followed up. Maybe at this point in his career, people were thinking, "Oh, Stevens went away from his sci-fi roots and he's throwing himself into all these serious movies." Because Empire of the Sun is very much the same. It's set in Vietnam, isn't Mark? Isn't Mark? Yeah, I think it's set in. I think it's in China. I think it's uh, when the Second World sure, War. Isn't it yeah, Japan? I'd say Empire of the Sun with the Rising Japan. Sun. It's Empire of the Sun. It's Japan. Oh, is it Japan? And it's British mm. national. No, sorry. It is about a wealthy, a wealthy young boy living in Shanghai, um, becoming a prisoner of war in a Japanese internment camp. So I guess a bit of both. But yeah, it's mainly actually China. Yeah, it's when the Japanese are invading. I think into China, and it, kind of wars breaking out, and he's like a a very upper class kind of young boy. But I starring a very young and is this his first movie role? Christian Bale. Christian Bale, yeah. I thought he was fantastic in this. I mean, I think my high score. This was probably the first of Spielberg's movies that wasn't science fiction that I had watched, mm. and I, the score I thought was fantastic, and it was great. I think obviously when I, I saw this relatively recently, so getting to see like a, a new Christian Bale from his older, but see, getting to see him act as a, a young boy was I thought was really interesting and interesting way to, to look at it. But I'm a big fan mm. of that movie. Although nine is really <laughs> high, I'm going to go was, back and see it. Because with that film, Mark, yeah, you give it a six. I find that it just it didn't feel very cohesive. I felt like it jumped all over the place, and it didn't really. And I was waiting for, you know, Spielberg to kind of tie up all these loose ends at the end, and then he kind of doesn't. And then it felt like what what was I meant to take from this whole film? And I do think I will agree. Christian mm -hmm. Bale does a great job as a child actor in this. He's the most engaged bit of film he has to hold the film in fact is this the first film that a kid has is the lead yeah of, of spielberg's films um so yeah. oh, you could argue et oh yeah et yeah but yeah i i definitely think color the color purple is the stronger the two period films there that he did back to back so you should all give the color purple a watch sold me on color purple but what i don't get is the is the range for empire of the sun is from a six to a nine 
to me who has never seen it before but probably it's been a it's been a very long time since i've seen that film but me and my dad watched it years and years and years ago and i, I remember enjoying it but i don't remember it enough like i'm sure if i went back and maybe give it a slightly i'm not sure maybe if i give it a nine like Corey did that's very generous but i'd maybe, I'd maybe boost generous. it up a little bit each to their own um, then the next film that uh, Spielberg did was he returned again to Indiana Jones and directed um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the third installment in the film uh, or in the series. And this was ranked our, uh, higher than the other two in our overall ranking. This ranked number six of Spielberg's best films. Um, I know Brian and myself are very big fans of this. Ross and Corey, not so much. <laughs> Uh, we'll go to Brian first of all on the positives. And the beautiful thing is split even. Like we're both nine and a half and they're both seven. They're both a seven. Yeah. Um, yeah, what can I say? It's it's like the perfect story. Let me pull a Ross over here, yeah. Um, so it's it's a story about a about a dad <laughs> and his son. And and the relationship between that. We can all relate to that. I, I don't I don't actually know maybe I romanticize the, the movie too much, but it's got everything. It's got Nazis. It's fun. Um, yeah, it, check, it's got check. like uh, like like the like the biggest uh, MacGuffin you can have, the, the Holy Grail, the eternal life. And then at the end, you realize you're fucked because if you take the Holy Grail, then you have to stay there on your own for all for all eternity. So why do it? And at the end, the father and the son, they come together. Yeah. I think um, the thing that fundamentally makes this film is the relationship between Sean Connery as Indiana Jones's dad and Indiana Jones, I guess. This father-son relationship, as you said, Brian, you don't get that. I was thinking about this driving to work today. You don't get that much in films, a uh, father and son relationship, if you... Do you? I can't think of many films that has that as the centre of their a film. A beautiful boy with a... Um, and, Stephen Carell and uh, Tim oh, yeah. Timothy Chalamet. Timothy Chalamet. It's also a good film, yeah. Um, but yeah, it just works so well together. And it's the... You see a new layer to Indiana Jones. This is how I think... This is kind of your perfect sequel, I think. Um, yeah. This is how you elevate the original and you add new layers to it and you improve on the original. And I think something that we didn't say about with Raiders of the Lost Ark, there's a lot to be said and we've taken it taken a lot from for granted as to what Raiders of the Lost Ark achieved. It started the whole franchise off. It made Indiana Jones who he is. Um, but this definitely elevates it. And I think that you see a new side to Indiana Jones because he's a wee bit more uh, kind of reserved when his dad's about. And obviously his dad's very judgmental, hard to please type of individual. He's never good enough. Junior? Yes, sir. It is you, Junior. Don't call me that, please. Well, what are you doing here? I came to get you. What do you think? Late 14th century Ming Dynasty. Oh, it breaks the heart. And the head. And, um, and then, obviously, as you said, Brian, bring back the Nazis. Even the, the kind of double agent female i've forgotten her name but she's really really good in it as well as far as the the female characters are concerned and then i i loved that when it came to the third act and they have to go in to try and hunt for this holy grail that you have real stakes 
immersed in this third act because um spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it but sean connery um indiana jones's dad ends up being shot and he only has minutes to live really before he's gonna bleed out and basically in it forces indiana jones to have to go and risk his life to get this holy grail to save his father and it felt like um, his father could die like I genuinely thought there's a very good chance he's not going to make it out of this film alive and they do such a good job developing the father that you kind of you really are rooting that Indiana Jones can get this holy grail so I think the stakes are on another level more than just the car the protagonist's own survival it's the protagonist's father which almost raises it a bit further the quest for the grail is not archaeology it's a race against evil if it is captured by the Nazis, the armies of darkness will march all over the face of the earth. Do you understand me? i just say one more thing. Um, uh, I wasn't as eloquent as uh, Mark was. And just actually everything you just said, I agree with. And just wanted to add in Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, you, 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 you can just see that everything uh, he did before, uh, story-wise, like uh, like you were saying about the color purple and uh, and Empire of the Sun, um, you can see he, he brought and you were just talking about layers. He, he brought more layers into it story-wise, and all the all the points that you just uh, named. And it was uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the the, the adventurous theme of the Raiders of the Lost Ark, but better. And that's why for me it's a perfect sequel because it's. Everything you did, better and more dimension, more depth in it. But it can still be enjoyable at the dumbest level. And I kind of, I feel bad that, like, this is my highest ranked um, Steven Spielberg film. And I feel bad that I gave it to a sequel because I am very anti-sequel these days. <laughs> um, but I have to. I was like, it is the best film, I think, on this entire list. And there's some competition on this list as well, which says something about how good I think this uh, third entry in the Indiana Jones franchise is. Um, right, the next film that Spielberg did was more of a kid-friendly film, um, but again, staying very uh, comfortable in the blockbuster arena, and that was um, an adaptation on the classic Peter Pan story, and that was Hook that he directed. Um, I This came in number nine on our list. I know, Ross, you're a big fan of this. I absolutely adore this movie. Absolutely adore this movie. Um, well, like, I mean, I'm a huge robin williams fan and this is one of my favorite Rob, it's just this is quintessential like kids movie thing for me you've got robin williams obviously playing the whole per premise of the story for anyone who hasn't seen it basically but what happens is so he's living in the real world and then dustin hoffman um who plays captain hook sends like his minions to go and kidnap peter pan's kids to try and lure him back into the fray again and that's what sort of preempts the entire thing for him to go back to Neverland and he sees how the entire thing has changed and you see like he goes back to the Lost Boys and they like recognize him they're like oh you're not Peter you're like a man and then but then there's like this new guy who's come in called Rufio and just like the entire thing I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it but it's just it's, it's so fun and it's I, I would argue I, I haven't seen E.T. but I would argue it's definitely up there with one of his most like child friendly like just really fun movies and i watched this so many times when i was a kid and yes nostalgia is probably playing a big part in why i love this movie so much but like you have some incredible performances like i said you've got 
Dustin Hoffman as Hook, which is he's incredible. You have this is the first time I think you see him again in something else, but Bob Hoskins plays Smee. And that is just one of the most incredible pieces of casting I've ever seen. He just fits into that role so, so well. Um, Julia Julia Roberts plays Tink, and she's really, really good in the role. And, like, again, anything that has Robin Williams in it, it's just absolute perfection as far as I'm concerned. I've never seen a bad Robin Williams performance. I'm sure they exist, but I've never seen one. So um, I would highly recommend if you've never seen this, and especially if you're someone who has young kids, um, perfect one for you to stick on for both of these. I got it. I found it. <laughs> you lost it. Just hold that happy thought, In 1993, um, Spielberg directed what we have ranked as our number one film of Spielberg's career, and that is the iconic Jurassic Park. Cue the music. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I don't know anyone who has not seen this film. Um, I think everyone knows of what this is now, um, and there's been so many films that have spawned from it. All of us have ranked it really high across the board. Corey, you give this a perfect 10 out of 10 film. Um, why do you think it's a 10? This is one of these movies, alongside Toy Story and um, The Lion King, that I watched probably pretty young. And they've just, those three movies have just stuck by me as probably my favourite films. Just as Ross says, you know, nostalgia plays a big part. But I mean, I was really into dinosaurs as a kid and then this is the perfect you know what would happen if dinosaurs were in the real world or you know in contemporary society and how would people deal with that and the whole idea of a park and the fact that everything goes wrong and um, fantastic as i mentioned before you know it's a lot of it was animatronics and even the cgi in this it looks dated now when you watch it but it's still fantastically done the sound effects how they did it you know not just john williams perfect score but the sound effects in this are amazing. Um, it's all very, very believable. That's that scene on the in the rain with the T Rex appearing. I think it's the first time it appears. It was at that point John Williams knew to, he used the classic Jaws move, which he doesn't reveal it right away. You kind of see it, you know, it builds up to that moment. But yeah, every bit of this movie is perfect. But yeah, that bit in the in the rain with the T Rex and it like plays with the car and like the the water going. Oh, it's just Perfect cinema, like. Now, and this species of veriformin's been extinct since the Cretaceous period. I mean, this thing is a hundred percent. Why?
Pensa. Pensa que tá na sua. Você fez. Você crazy son of a bitch. Você fez. Huge fan of Jurassic Park. I will never give it any less than a 10. And I think a couple of years ago, me and Mark saw it. It was like on my 25th birthday. It was doing like a, the, it was like the. Was that how long it was? Anniversary of it. Was that how long ago that um, was? Wow. <laughs> Can't believe that was. Yeah. Well, I suppose that's, yeah, three years ago. Or no, four I years presume ago. it was the 25th anniversary of the film. Yeah. I suppose this was like 1993, but we watched it at the QFT on my on my birthday and it was just perfect, like um great seeing it in the cinema. It's one of those movies that definitely really works in the cinema. Um but yeah, super huge fan of Jurassic Park. Um I'm not even gonna talk about what they've done with that series <laughs> more recently. Um but uh yeah, wonderful movie. Um I'm great to see that everyone else has given a really high yeah, score. I totally agree. I think it deserves Having went, you know, watched it again with you, Corey, it definitely holds up. It's not one of those films you go back to and go, oh, okay, I've kind of seen a lot of that now. Um, and it does it so much better than every other sequel that's come out since then as well for this film. Um, again, I think it's the whole suspense thing that um, Spielberg has mastered. He knows when to reveal the monster. You know, it's just like the Jaws thing as well. And the animatronics is incredible there's a series on netflix called yep. movies that made us and they go in behind the scenes on how they did the animatronics on jurassic park and it's really 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 cool um and kind of the how long it took them to get it right and you know you you know you have to be almost a perfectionist to reach that kind of standard and the cast is excellent yep. as well it's such a good cast i think jurassic park would rank as you know if we did a top 10 90s list i would say jurassic park's probably in the running for for that list um as well Definitely. okay well from jurassic park um we're hitting some of our favorite spielberg films at the moment kind of in the 90s um and he kind of swung from jurassic park into a very serious next piece uh, and that was schindler's list of course is all about um the horrific abuse experience to the jewish community during world war ii and um the gas chambers that they were sent to um we ranked this collectively as our third favorite um spielberg film and i actually tried to sit down last night to try and see if i could squeeze this in before the podcast again um and i realized i couldn't do it in pieces i was like it's a it's a big three hour epic it's more than three hours and i thought i need to give this time again and you need to be in the right headspace for this type of film as well you really it's not a film you, you just really stick do. on it's very very serious very very dark and very tragic um when did you see this film guys were you younger when when you saw this or, or um what was your experience with the film 
I think wisely my because I like most of my movie watching thing and I know Corey's the same with this was with my dad and I think very wisely like he was like this is one you have to be older until you watch he didn't let me watch it whenever I was younger at all and I'm very very grateful for that because it really sort of it, it's awful it really is awful but I think you need to be if you come to it whenever you are older you sort of are able to appreciate that a little bit more and there's just like god Ralph Fiennes in this movie is ridiculous he, he plays it so so you just one of the most deplorable human beings alive and he plays it so so well um the visuals in this movie are absolutely like incredible there's that really like there's this bit where they're going through the ghetto and they're if, if, basically removing all the families from the ghetto to take them to the concentration camps and there's just this one little girl in this red dress and that's the only color you see on the entire screen and it ever since i've seen that it's just completely stayed with me um the yeah a really hard movie to watch and really like you said not something not just a light sort of fun one you stick on with your friends but really important movie i would argue to see and you could tell it's obviously very very close to spielberg's heart as well because he's he funds that organization i can't I think it's called the show organization because he's a very he's a very prominent about he's very prominent in the jewish community he's very very proud and very very vocal about his faith and has given an awful lot in terms of funds to ensure that they to holocaust victims with regards to making sure stories are told and keeping a record and stuff of that. And you can tell it, you can tell this is a passion project for him. And I, I'm really, 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 really ha- happy this movie exists in the sense that it's a very good sort of reminder um, of what this period was like. And Brian, uh, when did you watch this film? What sort of impact did it create? Yeah, I, I don't know how, um, how the school system works in, uh, in England, but um, it would be around 11 or 12, something like that. Yeah, so we secondary school is kind of starts at about 12 or so. Yeah, secondary school. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of like around high school. Time, yeah. yeah. Um, I think it was a bit too heavy for that moment. Is that when and, you watched it? Yeah. When you were that age? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I didn't watch it again for a long while. But then you, you, you start to appreci- appreciate it. And everything you said, um, yeah, you know, it's a, you have to need, need to be in the right headspace. Uh, also wanted to watch this yesterday, didn't do it because that, that would be just depressing. Um, but also everything you guys said. And the other thing is he did this while the production of Jurassic, the, the post-production of Jurassic Park was still running. And he also had to do stuff for Jurassic Park. So imagine doing a, a movie like Jurassic Park and Schindler's List back to back with no break and going from that whole Jurassic Park experience and, uh, and, and the whole emotional state that that gives to something like Schindler's List. I think that's that's real hard. And he just, he, for me, he actually made his, yeah, his two most iconic movies back to back. On the note of those two, going back to back, apparently that year, I think it was 1993, was it? Would yeah, that be right? I think so. Yeah. Um, he is the only director to have won the best picture for that year and also directed the biggest grossing film of the year as well. So he got it for biggest grossing films, Jurassic Park, and then Schindler's List won the best picture. Yeah. So he had a boffo year that year. 
but yeah, yeah. very very hard to switch between those two. You know, if you were directing, that shows you the range that he can do. Yeah, you know, like Jurassic Park is a whole other way of telling a story. Is the whole event adventure and all the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Last Crusade, all that, with the kid stuff, and uh, and you go to something serious. It's, it's literally a black and white movie, and it's, it's one of the heaviest material I think he has done. So seeing that just makes him the best director ever. Um. So after Schindler's List, uh, Spielberg then went on. He took a. a um, a bit of a break, I think. Well, a break for, for Steven Spielberg, um, which was four years. Came back with a sequel to Jurassic Park, The Lost World. I had never realized that he directed that film as well. And okay. then he made the film Amistad after that. And then in 1998, came out with another World War II film, which was Saving Private Ryan. And we have ranked Saving Private Ryan as our number two um, favorite Spielberg film. Um, what do we think about this, guys? Because obviously this is a different angle to the war um, compared to Schindler's List. Um, what do we think of this film? My question for you is why would you give this movie 7 out of 10? <laughs> I'm not trying to be combative. I'm just genuinely curious. To me, this movie's perfect. So I, I don't know why you would give it 7. Well, I, I was going to say about Schindler's List, my favourite type of war films... I think are kind of like your Schindler's List and the boy with the striped pajamas. Oh yeah. I prefer the films to focus on the Holocaust. Um, just because to me, I don't want to seem disrespectful to any other part of the war, but to me, the tr real tragedy of World War II was the killing of millions and millions of Jews. Um, at least the ones who went into war and as much as that was so much bravery, um, you know, they at least kind of understood the consequences of going to war to a degree um, and I just find it so much more tragic just to listen to or watch the the events of Schindler's List but not to say Saving Private Ryan still a really strong film I, war films are just not my type of thing generally not the yeah. ones that are on you know on the battlefield they're not my type of thing I do think the opening is really really good in this but after that I find the story to be kind of kind of look warm um yeah it's just war films aren't aren't my favorite but i would say this is up there with one of the very best of the war films i've seen but why is it so good ross and corey i just i think for me this is the quintessential war movie because it doesn't at no point while you're watching it does it glamorize war war which an awful lot of movies i think prior to this did this is to my knowledge and maybe i'm wrong i'm not film historian but i think this is one of the first movies that actually depicts it in sort of the real grittiness and like the it's not sort of like this glorified like do you know what i mean because you see like even from you said that opening bit on omaha beach where like you see tom hanks's character and he hops off he's in this sort of landing ship and like i think he's basically like the only person on that landing ship that gets off it like alive because they all just get gunned down left, right, and center. There's, there's nothing glorious about this at all. And even whenever he gets off the boat, and whenever they go on the mission to find Private Ryan, at no point during that is anyone, um, happy, like particularly happy for what they're doing or anything like that. There's, it just, it really sort of pinpoints the horror of the whole thing. And I just think it, it does such a good job with it. I think there's some incredible performances in here as well. Like I said, Tom Hanks 
is really really good. Tom Sizemore is like the sergeant that follows him around, and he has this this one really really nice little shot where he like has this thing where he'll like pick up dirt from every country that he's landed in and like puts it into like this little jar and then he puts it in his bag in his back and you just see like him open it and like there's all these little jars sitting around which shows the le- the extent that he has been obviously it's a really nice way of, instead of saying like oh i've been in a thousand battles buddy you wouldn't believe it like it's just this really nice way of like showing showing that um to show that he's obviously been through an awful lot of this um but God, the performances in this are fantastic. Even like Matt Damon, just is—he's only in it sort of towards the end, um, but he's really, really good on it. And like it, Tom Hanks is, for me, probably Tom Hanks and Robin Williams are probably my two favorite actors, and he's just—he's really, really incredible in this. Tankbuster, sir, P-51s. Angels on our shoulders. What, sir? James. Yeah, this for me, I mean, this is one they use in film studies a lot. In terms of like sound design, it's mm-hmm. just unbelievable. Like the opening for this. I think because, you know, as we were saying at the very start, Spielberg was around when blockbusters started, you know, big cinema movies were coming in. And obviously back in those days, sound effects were a bit different to what they are now or what they were in the 90s. But here he's continually like throughout his career is using like, even the way the sound cuts out, you know, mixing score with what sounds like, uh, sounds like it's happening in the real world and you know everything from like the gunshot noises to the the tanks going off to the explosions it's all very visceral and all very real and um this and Stephen Private Ryan is a, is a great example of that in terms of like filmmaking prowess although he's a great director um in terms of story and and working with actors like all the technical side of things Spielberg does so well and this is definitely one of the one of the um best examples of that and then after Saving Private Ryan, um, Spielberg um, dived back into his sci-fi roots with AI uh, in 2001. Um, and this was a film that I think originally Stanley Kubrick had been developing and then Spielberg took over it. Um, and it's kind of unclear as to how much Spielberg is responsible for. It's down as his, him as the director. Um, but um, I think a lot of the first portion of the film was kind of it wasn't filmed by Stanley Kubrick, but it was developed by him. Um, I just wanted to mention that this was, I believe, Brian's very highest rated film. Um, and it is one of my personal kind of soft spots um, of Spielberg's filmography. Why did you rank it so high, Brian? <clears throat> I think, again, it, 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 it's the timing of it. But um, um, what I find impressive about the whole movie is... Uh, the whole scope of it, it's it's like the scope of, uh, of of the dystopian Blade Runner movies, which you actually get on the ground level with the characters. And I think now I'm thinking about it, it's maybe it's one of the best sci-fi movies who did a big scope, but kept it clean by 
staying close to the characters. I actually got uh, Max, our mutual friend, to sit down and watch this one yeah. uh, with me, Brian. And he was not that big a fan. And to be fair, I lowered my ranking from a 9 down to an 8 after I watched it again. Mm -hmm. It is very slow. Yeah. It's a little bit too slow, I yeah. think, in my opinion. I yeah. think that's maybe the Stanley Kubrick effect yeah. in that film because he's quite slow with his, you know, very suspenseful. Mm -hmm. um, I think, yeah, as you said, it keeps to a very relatable center of the film, which is a boy who wants the love of his mother. And it's basically about this AI, artificial intelligence robot, who starts to develop human emotions. And it's all about him trying to reconnect with his mum. And I think those sci-fi films, when you bring it down to a very core, raw emotion, that's the best way to do a sci-fi film. You have been searching for me, haven't you, David? My whole life. And what, after all this time, have you come to ask me? I have a wish to make. And what is your wish? Please make me a real boy, so my mommy will love me and let me stay with her. So after AI, um, Spielberg then directed Minority Report, starring Tom Cruise, which is another sci-fi film. And then after that, he um, brought together two of Hollywood's biggest names with Leonardo DiCaprio and back with Tom Hanks again with the thriller Catch Me If You Can, which we ranked our number five Spielberg film. Um, what do we think of this one? Um, I This is one I saw, I think, last year, year before. And I was I think my biggest problem, I give this a 7.5 out of 10. And I think a large part of this was down to my expectations not quite being met but at the same time I think I had very I mean with a cast like this just the, the whole concept and everything I had probably far higher expectations than were appropriate um I wish I'd sort of came into this movie completely fresh and not really knowing anything about it um so I think that's potentially for me it's where I've slightly went the other way a little bit with this one um but I like I mean Leonardo DiCaprio was really really good in this and as is Tom Hanks and he has that accent that he's putting on but I just think it's kind of crazy because it's a true this is another true story so Spielberg really likes to do true stories every now and again and this is one of the more sort of outlandish ones that like a 14 or is a 14 or 15 year old kid was able to pretend to be like an airline pilot and like teacher at school and all this sort of stuff it's kind of crazy um, but yeah just I don't know it didn't really hit me as well as much as I thought it would, but it still, it was quite, it, I still quite enjoyed it. Yeah. Corey, um, what did you think of this one? Yeah, it's probably one of those that kind of cat and mouse, you know, one person chasing the other type films. Um, probably one of the first I'd seen. Uh, I really loved the chemistry between the two of them. Um, I love Leonardo DiCaprio in this movie. It's one I've never went back to rewatch. And yeah, as we were saying, it's not a sci-fi Spielberg movie and it's more, um, a true story. Uh, I think it's. I think it's great. Um, it's an enjoyable movie. It's one I would definitely recommend to people um, for sure. But yeah, once again, I think my eight even might be a little bit high. I think maybe a seven would be more like it. But um, it's, it was great to see those two come together in this for sure. Hundred checks here. Hands on your head. Drafting. He even has little payroll envelopes addressed to himself. Put it down. Drop it. Relax. You're late. All right. 
My name's Alan, Barry Allen, United States Secret Service. Your boy just tried to jump out the window. My partner has him in custody. I don't know what you're talking about. What, you think the FBI are the only ones on this guy? I mean, come on. Come on, he's dabbling in government checks here. I've been following a paper trail on this guy for months now. Hey, you, you mind taking that gun out of my face? Please, really. I mean, it makes me nervous. And then after Catch Me With If You Can, he kept with Tom Hanks and made The Terminal, which again is based on a true story about a man, um, like an immigrant basically, coming into a, into the United States. I can't remember where Tom Hanks' character was originally from, but he basically doesn't have uh, the documentation to stay in the States. And as a result of all this kind of red tape, he has to stay inside the airport. Um, until he can go home. I think he's a refugee. I think there's war going on in this home. Yeah, so the point is is that his country, while he's in the air, his country gets taken over and a bit essentially removed um, from, so therefore his credentials no longer count or something. Like his passport is no longer valid because he was supposed to go in and therefore they won't let him out of the US without like immediately deporting him and sending him back. Um, but then he can't go back home either, so he's kind of stuck in the airport. And this happened to a real yeah. guy in like it was some. It wasn't no, he wasn't American. It was in um, Charles de Gaulle in France, and he this guy lived in Charles de Gaulle Airport for something like insane, like nearly thirty, like twenty years or something like that. And then he ended up like only getting only leaving because he was like sick, and they needed to take him to hospital. Um, but like again, it's one of these. Spielberg has a great sort of tendency to pick these these stories that are these really great human stories that are just like so uh, unbelievable, but are actually based in fact. I think it's crazy. Um, so the terminal we ranked number seven, which is quite high, um, higher than I expected that to end up on, because um, I wasn't the biggest fan of this film. Um, and then after the terminal, um, in two thousand five, Spielberg directed War of the World, so we went back into sci-fi and alien invasion with tom cruise and then he directed munich after that then he went back and um i don't know if the studio forced his hand or what happened with this film but indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull was made and the less said about that the better i think um and hopefully whatever fifth installment we get is going to be better but i can't see it ever living up to what last crusade did so i'm not sure if i really care for another sequel and then after that he did Adventures of Tintin, and then he did another World War Two drama, or World War One, I, I think this one was, War Horse. Um, and then that lands us on our number eight pick, which is, um, again, another true story about Abraham Lincoln, um, and it was titled Lincoln. What did we think of this drama? I have not seen this film, so you're going to have to sell it to me. It's uh, it's one I watched. It's Daniel Day-Lewis, right? Um, I don't really know much about Abraham Lincoln up to this point, so that was like where I got all my history about him from. That or I did see uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, which uh, unfortunately wasn't fantastic. wasn't the real history. And I think I'm well. I'm pretty sure I watched both of those movies within like a space of a month, so my whole like perception of Lincoln was all off at this point. But no, it's a really well, um, really see, yeah. I get mixed up, you know, which which stories was real and which stories weren't. But it's a it's a really good. It's just once again, as you say, Mark, it's one of his. Um, true stories based um within history and it's a it's a, it's a great it's a great performance and it's a, it's a you know these movies that give you little glimpses of tr real characters and you know people who had a big effect on the world um 
I love movies like that. Um, and yeah, it's 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 great. But who is it to give it six? Is that Ross? Oh, that might have been. That yeah. might have been me. Ross, why did you not like it? Yeah, Ross, it? why did you not like it? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to be getting competitive. Um, I guess I, it's six. I think it. No, no, no. I just think it was for me. I remember just coming out of this being like really bored. Um, I don't now, in fairness, and I will hold my hands up that six is maybe a bit harsh. I'd actually forgotten I kept on the six before looking at this. But I think for me, there was just, it was all centered around Daniel Day Lewis's performance, which is always going to be great. And I think this is another one of like heightened expectations because you've got like two of the goats, you know, you've got Spielberg and got Daniel Day like together. And you're thinking like, okay, this is going to be phenomenal. And it's just like, I don't, it didn't leave anything with me. I couldn't tell you a single thing that happened in that movie. I don't remember any of it. I just remember he obviously, I remember the stories more about like him getting into character than anything else about that movie. Now, maybe I'd need to rewatch it and maybe I'm missing something because it was a while ago that I saw it, but I just don't, if it didn't, it doesn't seem to have any staying power with me, I think was my biggest problem with it. Uh, Brian, you really like this one? Yeah, you know, it's, it's again one of those uh, slow burn, long uh, Steven Spielberg movies, and I like them. Um, that's why, like, Catch Me If You Can, it's also a really long movie. I think it's three hour plus, right? Something like that. Um, but it, that had more action in it and all that. But um, this one, again, yeah, it's, it's a true story. Uh, he, he gets on that uh, human level again. I mean, like, something, someone as iconic as Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and 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 humanizing that uh, myth or the or like the he's like an American superhero, actually, <laughs> but but more more of the kind who is philosophical, funny, likes to talk, and uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 again like uh, AI, but the other side of it be, be, being not science fiction at all, just take AI and put it on the other spectrum and you get Lincoln. And that's why I like it as well. You know, uh, with all these movies, I, I know I'm not saying actually uh, really specific things. And, and I find that hard uh, for Steven Spielberg because th th there's, uh, there's a lot of emotional value, you know? Like, catch me if you can. If I would show it to someone else, they could hate it. Um, but I will always love it because I want to be the character of Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, uh, screw everyone over. Just commit fraud and uh, it, it looks fun. <laughs> it looks like a fun lifestyle. <laughs> you know, that, that's something that Steven Spielberg, uh, Steven Spielberg does in his movies and in his uh, storytelling uh, on, on multiple levels. He makes me want to live the story and, and, and with like cool characters, of course, you want to be them. Um, but the first thing I wanted to be was an archaeologist because of Indiana Jones. But I realized soon enough that that's a boring job to do. And, uh, and and all that, you know, like Jurassic Park pulled me into the whole science thing. And Jurassic Park was my uh, my jumping off point for uh, for science fiction. Before that, I only like historical uh, stuff and all that. So Steven Spielberg actually um, shaped me way too much to be uh, to be like someone who can uh, who can look objectively to his movies. I can only just tell you what he does right. Uh, not that much about what he does wrong. <laughs> yeah. And then after Lincoln, um, Steven Spielberg did the 
uh, Cold War um, drama, Bridge of Spies, um, followed by um, kind of going back to the uh, kids' uh, novels again by adapting the Roald Dahl's BFG. And then he followed that up with the political drama The Post with Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks. And then he came back into his, his sci-fi roots again with, with an adaptation on the book Red Player One. Um, and then that brings us up to date with um, his newest release that's coming out this week, I believe, which is um, West Side Story, a revamped version of the classic um, I Want to romance. Live in America. I'm so excited. I got my ticket book for Wednesday for tomorrow, actually. Uh, no, not tomorrow, Friday. And I'm like, absolutely, I'm so excited. I love the original. Uh, I love a musical, as anyone remembers from our musical episode. So I'm very, very hyped for this. <laughs> the reviews are very strong for this um, from, yeah. from, you know, at the gate. I, I mean, I don't like the idea of revamping an, all re- you know, an already classic film, um, but... It has been a long, long time since this. Is this his first remake? I think so. I think this is his first remake. And I'm wondering, because I'm looking here, and this is what I wanted just to briefly touch on with you, was for me, and I think, I don't, I guess if we take Lincoln out of this, and I guess maybe some of you can argue, I think he's been on sort of a downward slope. Yeah. For me, like in terms of like his real heyday for me was like, the 90s, well, maybe like sort of from the mid 80s to like the early, very early 2000s. I think that was like his peak. And for me, ever since then, he's just been on like a sort of downward slope. I don't, whenever I like hear about a Spielberg movie, now, I'm not filled with the same sort of like, wow, Spielberg, as I used to be. Um, based on like his previous work, I don't know how you guys feel about that. That's a good point, Ross. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I mean, even just looking at our rankings, you know, the only film, kind of since the early two thousands, that made it onto our top ten Spielberg list was Lincoln, and mm-hmm. um, but I do think that happens with directors. Directors will have their heyday, you know. No, absolutely. And absolutely. the man is coming on seventy five, so you know. And I still think a Spielberg film is still a good film. And that's that's better said than most directors can come out with these days. Yeah, is that when you're going in for a Spielberg film, you're rarely going to be disappointed. Um, who knows what happened in that Indiana Jones: and The Kingdom of the Crystal? Yeah. I think that's his only bad film. Shia LaBeouf. We can blame Shia LaBeouf <laughs> for the impact. Okay, we'll just blame Shia. Um, but yeah, no, I agree. But I also think that like Spielberg has such versatility; it's incredible. I don't think there's a director out there that has the versatility and the diverse back catalogue that Spielberg has. Um, he can kind of try everything and master everything. There's very few genres. You know how we normally say, what would we like the director to do next? I'm not sure if I would even have something to offer to him because he, he's kind of tried most types of films at this point. And it's nice to see that, whereas a lot of other directors, yes, they're very good at what they do, but they work within a very narrow niche. Absolutely. Which is why I just think it's interesting that his, like, big this this next big movie of his is like i said his first attempt at like a a remake so to speak so it's just interesting to see if this is if this obviously pulls up plays out for him is this going to be like what we're going to see for like the twilight years of the spielberg career or maybe like maybe just retires i don't know i don't know if the man would ever retire from filmmaking it'd be interesting i don't think so and his first his first try at a musical as well yeah 
Um, any last thoughts, guys? I would just say like he's been such a um, he's been such an influence on so many directors. Um, especially, I think the biggest one is JJ Abrahams. Yeah. Um, he has especially with like Cloverfield was obviously like JJ Abrahams was very open about how how much that yeah inspired him. Um, uh, and of course, there's been so many different movies that have kind of obviously a lot of these movies had like the new you know franchises have come out of the likes of Jurassic Park and there's been continually having adaptations of the War of the Worlds I mean there's been TV series of that very recently both an English version and a, a US version and then as we see there's going to be this next uh, Indiana Jones film a Tintin movie there was a talk of more of those as well um, but not quite sure if Spielberg would be on board but yeah I mean just in terms of his style um, and his, the effect he's had on cinema has obviously in, in influenced a lot of other directors Right, guys, um, thank you, Brian, for coming along for our Spielberg episodes. Yeah, that was a gigantic episode to get through, um, but I really, really enjoyed it. Um, some fantastic films that we managed to get through there um, and review. Um, and um, for everyone else listening, um, you can check out more of our episodes on all the types of podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, and we've got one more episode coming up before Christmas um, which is on a release that's about to come out in a couple of weeks time which I'm sure people can guess um, and if you can follow us on social media um, to stay up to date with all things Film Frequency related um, and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and keep watching films. See you next time Bye Bye